0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, Church. My name is Franklin. Um, this morning I'm reading from 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man, Elkanah. He had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts of Shiloh and would give portions to Peninnah. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the temple. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, "'Let your servant find favor in your eyes.' Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, "'I have asked for him from the Lord.' And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. She brought him to the house of the Lord to Eli, and she said, "'O my Lord,' As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to the God. Help us to respond in faith.
1: Thank you thank you so much, uh, Franklin, for uh, reading that for us. Well, lovely to see you all. Uh, welcome to the English Church Plant. For those of you who are here for the first time, Thomas and Hannah, uh, who I just met. Uh, well, we uh, are beginning the book on uh, 1 Samuel. Trent did a lovely overview for us last week on uh, chapter 1 through 31 and giving us some of the big themes, and today we begin by looking at... Samuel's birth. Uh, the son that is born to Hannah is Samuel. He plays the title role in uh, well, one of the title roles in the book of 1 Samuel. It's a lot about him and about his ministry of bringing the future king of Israel, Saul and David, into office. And there's some very powerful images which come from that which uh, point us to Jesus. But the author of uh, this material begins us in chapter 1, right before Samuel's birth, to give us some of the backstory, some of the drama. It's a, it's a, it's a, a most riveting and capturing introduction to how Samuel actually comes into the world. But before we get in there, well, in fact, let me, let me do it this way. Let me explain my two points for today. I'm going to divide uh, today's sermon under two headings. The first heading is just Hannah's story. Point number one is Hannah's story. We're just going to work our way from the top to the bottom looking at Hannah's story as it is told in, uh, in this chapter. And then the second point I want us to look at is uh, Hannah's revelation, Hannah's story. And what leads to it is a revelation that Hannah has of God himself. That's in. The first 10 verses of chapter 2. We didn't read them today, just in the interest of time, but I'll guide us through Hannah's revelation after we deal with Hannah's story. Okay, before I get to Hannah's story, I would like to read you a quote, if we can flash it up on the screen, from a book that I've been reading uh, recently. Uh, it's called The Deepest Place. This book, it's about suffering, and uh, the author writes this, We are not always aware that we are at war. In our deepest place of suffering, at the center of our breath bodies, we wonder to ourselves if that very suffering is a direct result of the war that God is waging with us. We wonder this, he says. A war that we have no way of winning. And then he gives some examples of people suffering who ask this question of being at war with God. And he gives these examples. The sexless marriage the family mess, the addiction to pornography you cannot overcome, the boss who blames you. It's not difficult in these situations of these items of suffering, the deepest places of suffering, to believe, albeit quite unconsciously, that the God of the Bible is indeed at war with us. So he's making the point, sometimes when we're in suffering, we think, is God at war with me? Is he against me? Is God fighting me? We subconsciously think that sometimes, he says. And this man is a Christian psychologist, by the way. The second paragraph goes like this. One of the primal origins of our anxiety response is our terror of abandonment. I'm here referring to the state of awareness we have frequently, non-consciously, that we are being intentionally left by God in direct response to our state of shamefulness. So he makes the point... We feel the sense of shame, that we're doing things wrong, and we feel like God is going to abandon us as a result. Our shame, he continues, which occupies so much real estate in our minds, reminds us that our suffering is because of our choices. We are the essence of our suffering. We are tempted toward self-condemnation that holds us exclusively accountable for anything that we experienced. So to sum up that quote, he says, there are different ways people suffer. Sometimes you make a bad decision and you suffer because of that. But many times you suffer because there are things outside of your decision-making which impact you and cause you to suffer. But sometimes, because we have this kind of guilt running in the background, we think all the suffering is our fault because we've done some stuff wrong in our life and then every other bad thing that's happened to us, whether we've caused it or not, we feel like we are responsible and we caused it because somehow God is against us. And he said, most people kind of operate like this, in this way of thinking. That's a very deep idea. When guilt and suffering start combining and you can't quite tear the two apart, you know you've kind of done some stuff wrong, but then the truth is there's other stuff which is well out of your control or decision making, which is genuinely causing you to suffer, And it all becomes a little bit confused in your mind. Well, that's an introduction to Hannah's story. Hannah's story, point number one. So let me read for us, uh, if we can flash it on the screen. Uh, Verses one to four. Just retelling the story as it appears to us in the Old Testament here. There was a certain man, Elkanah, that's the husband. He had two wives. Just a quick note on the context. At this point in... uh, God's uh, progressive revelation of what's right and wrong. It's not yet illegal to have two wives, okay? It's just the way it is at this point. That's not the big point of the story. It was sort of customary and acceptable at this time. Um, but this man had two wives, Hannah and Penaniah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to sacrifice, and the story tells us that he would regularly sacrifice annually To the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Shiloh was like the Jerusalem at this point in Israel's history. And that's the place where you would go up and make these sacrifices. He was very diligent. He would go there year after year. And he would take his two wives and uh, Peninnah's children. Verse 4. And he would give portions to Peninnah. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Because he loved her. It's a romantic touch. Because he loved her. Well, The first five verses show us that uh, what you don't have, you want. What you don't have, you want. Because here's the situation. There's Penana who has a husband and has children. But the thing she doesn't have is the primary love of this man. She doesn't have that, but that's the thing she really wants. It's the other way around for Hannah. She has the love the primary love of the husband but the one thing she doesn't have is children and that's the thing that she deeply 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 wants and so we begin the story today with uh, this principle of the thing you don't have is the thing that you want at least in the case of these two characters but then things become a little bit more interesting shall we say when uh, we read in verse 5 the second part of verse 5 that the lord had closed Hannah's womb. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. We're not told exactly why at this point. We're just told God has acted sovereignly, and Hannah's womb has been closed by God himself, and she's really suffering as a result. Verse 6 to 8, let me read it for us. And given this matrix of desiring the things you don't have, it says here in verse 6, and her rival, that's Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, And we told a second time, why was there this provocation and this uh, attack against her? It is because the Lord had closed her womb. So we read that a second time. God is acting sovereignly here. Verse 7, so it went on year by year. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here we just have a trifactor of shame. All three people are feeling deep shame here. Uh, Penana, because she doesn't have the husband's love. Hannah, she doesn't have children. And then Elkanah is feeling like a failed husband. He's like, but Hannah, he's a bit of a dumb husband in some ways. He's like, but Hannah, aren't I good enough for you? Do you really need children? I love you so much. Isn't that enough for you? And she just year after year is in bitter distress. So he's feeling like a failure she is feeling a deep sense of shame, and she's asking herself, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And the reason she's asking, what's wrong with me, is because this nasty other wife, Peninnah, is singing songs like this. The Lord has closed your womb. The Lord has closed your womb. He's really, 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 she is really, really, really mocking her. At her deepest, most vulnerable point When they go, especially when they go to church, when they go up to Shiloh to offer sacrifices, this woman chooses that moment to be vicious and nasty. And the thought starts growing in Hannah's mind. And everyone seems to acknowledge that it's God who's closed the womb. Elkanah is giving sacrifices, a double portion because of it. This woman is singing songs about it. And Hannah starts believing God has closed my womb, which is true. It's what the text says. But then she starts reading between the lines, asking this question, there must be something wrong with me. They're all involved in this sort of triangle of shame. Well, let's carry on reading. Verse 9, after one of these incidents, Hannah rose. She goes to the temple. Now, Eli the priest was sitting at the temple. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is someone in deep anguish and torment. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Hannah goes to the temple. She's at the most low point she's been in her life. And she says to God, she asks for four things. Number one, would you look? Would you look at the affliction I'm going through? Would you look, number one? Number two, would you remember me? Number three, which is not the same as number two, would you not forget? And then number four, Can I have a baby? Would you look at me, number one? Would you remember me, number two? Would you not forget, number three? And number four, can I have a child? Can I have a child? And what is so interesting about the way this is formulated is uh, I think there are two levels going on here. I think Hannah is suffering surface shame and she's suffering deeper shame. She's suffering surface shame and deeper shame. On the surface, she doesn't have a child, and that's a cause of shame to her. But at a deeper level, there's something deeper than just not having a child. At a deeper level, she feels like God has overlooked her, because she asks for God to look. God has forgotten her, so she asks God to remember her. She feels like God has deliberately forgotten her, so she pleads with God not to forget her. Those are the three deeper shames. And then Surface shame, number four, is, God, would you remember me? Would you give me a child? Would you give me a child? And I say this because if you read those verses closely, you'll realize that she's a pretty bad negotiator. She's making a bargain with God. She's making a trade. God, if you give me a child, I'll give the child right back to you. On the surface of it, that's a pretty poor bargain, Give me something, and I'll give it right back to you. In other words, we're led to believe, wow, there's actually something deeper here. It's more than just having a baby, because she'll get a baby, but then she'll give the baby back to God. Her deeper need is to not feel like God has overlooked her, forgotten her, and not remembered her. She needs to feel like God loves her, that God is for her, and it's become all confused in her mind. I'm suffering here but maybe the suffering is because I've done something wrong and God is at war with me and I'm at fault somehow. And I'm feeling overlooked. I'm feeling not remembered. I'm feeling ignored. And that becomes her, her prayer. God, would you remember? Would you look? Would you not forget me? Would, would, I need to know that I'm on good terms with you. I need to know that. I need to know that. And I also would dearly, dearly, dearly love a child. Well, the story goes on, and uh, I said it was her lowest point. Well, not quite true, because just when you think things can't get any lower, they do. And she enters into further shame, or even deeper shame, because what happens next is uh, the church leader. Verse 12, uh, Eli observed her mouth. Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? In a very moralistic tone of voice. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have spe- been speaking. Out of my great anxiety and vexation. Just when you think she can't be shamed anymore, the church leader says, You are an immoral woman, you are a loose woman, you are getting drunk. We know where this leads to. He shames her. The poor woman. This is this is terrible to be in this position. Being have shame and scorn. At this point, no one has understood her in the story. Her husband hasn't. The other wife hasn't. She feels like God doesn't. And now the church leader, the guy in charge of the temple, this Eli character, is now accusing her of being an immoral woman, a worthless woman. And yet, yet, faith arises in Hannah's heart. Because in verse 16, just to read it again, she says, all along, I've been speaking, I've been talking to God, pouring out my great anxiety and vexation. And it's at this point that we do hit the bottom of the curve, the lowest point of the story, and then verse 17 becomes the fulcrum, and things start to trend upwards from here. She could have kept quiet to Eli, but she chose to vocalize back to Eli and to say, no, no. I'm not a worthless woman. Actually, what I'm doing here is I am dealing with God at a very deep and profound level. I am in conversation with God here. She's not giving Eli all the details, but somehow faith rises in her heart to say, no, I'm going to stand my ground. That's not true. I'm doing business here with God. I am desperate for the king of the universe to connect with me and to show me that I am lovable and that I'm not worthless. That was what was going on in her. And somehow, we're not given all the details, but reading between the lines, it's the sovereign work of God. Somehow, Eli gets a revelation in verse 17 of what is going on. Because he suddenly changes his tune. It must have been in the way that faith was manifesting in Hannah's heart. Because in verse 17, Eli says, he answers, go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. Wow. Wow. For the first time in the story, someone gets her. Someone understands her. It's like, oh, I see now. Oh, Hannah, you are praying to God. You are asking Him for things. Well, I'm going to support you in this, and I'm now praying for you and for your prayers. I am petitioning God that your petition would be answered. Eli has understood her. God's representative, as it were, has now understood this woman and what she's going through. He doesn't know all the details but he understands her. And this is a very significant moment for her because in verse 18, it goes on to say, and she said, let your servant find favor. What she's looking for is favor from God. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Her first request was, God, can you see me and not overlook me? And here she feels like this man, Eli, who represents God, has now seen her. And not only has he seen her, she feels understood. And she feels like, I'm going to get favor. And she feels connected with God. She feels like, oh, maybe God's not at war with me. Maybe God actually does see me. Maybe God does actually see me in my suffering. No one has got me or understood me. But now, for the first time, I feel it. And there's a breakthrough, as it were, which uh, comes to Hannah. And it goes on, and it says this, going from the depths of despair This moment the feeling that God sees her and is going to cover her with his favor results in this. Second part of verse 18, then the woman went away and ate. She hasn't been eating in days. Suddenly she eats. And listen to this, and her face was no longer sad. She's suddenly in jubilation. She doesn't yet have a baby. She doesn't know if she's going to have a baby at this point. But the thing that's changed is she realizes that God is for her. She doesn't need the baby to prove that God is for her. She now knows that God is for me. And she's rejoicing, which, again, gives credence to the theory or the thesis that she's suffering surface shame and then deeper shame of wanting God to connect with her and have favor towards her with or without a child. Without a child, she finds joy because she finds the well-being And the favor of God towards her. And then the rest of the story is wonderful. Verse 19, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The key word, God remembered her. He's already looked on her. He's already given her his favor and understanding, and now he really does remember her. Verse 20, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. She brought him to the house of the Lord, to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent or given to the Lord. And he worshipped, that's Samuel, and he worshipped the Lord there. And Samuel, as we're going to see in the sermons to come, uh, grows up and gets risen in the temple in the house of God. Okay, so what is the conclusion to Hannah's story, bringing first point to a close, the second point is quicker, is this idea. In conclusion, what we can see here is God's sovereign purposes meet with faith. And someone's faith meets with God's sovereign purposes. God's sovereign purposes meet with faith. And someone's faith meets with God's sovereign purposes. You see, God is acting sovereignly here. He closes a womb. He opens a womb. He brings a revelation to Eli. He brings joy and hope to Hannah. He's acting sovereignly. And yet at the same time, Hannah is also vesting faith in a God who wants to look, who wants to remember, who wants to not forget and who wants to give good gifts as well. And these two come together, the sovereignty of God and someone's faith. And if you zoom out from the story a little more, Samuel is this key figure in this book of 1 Samuel, obviously. And so God is doing something. He's got a huge story which is going on that he's writing, which uh, Hannah is now Instead of focusing on her small story, is looking at now God's big story and is connecting her experience to God's bigger experience, which is the moral of the story, if we can have that slide. Hannah submits her micro-narrative to God's macro-narrative. Hannah submits her micro-narrative to God's macro-narrative. You see, sometimes we get it switched around, and we make our experience, what we are going through, the biggest story in the universe, and we make what God is doing, the smallest story in the universe. And we want God's story to fit into our story. But here, Hannah goes, actually, the big story of what God is doing in the universe, what God is doing with His people, is to communicate that He is for people. He loves people. Even though we sin, even though we've got guilt and shame, He loves us, and He wants to save us and redeem us and cover us with His favor. That's God's big story, and that should be the biggest story in our lives, instead of making our experience of pain and suffering to be bigger than the work that God is doing in the world, which then brings us to point number two, Hannah's revelation, Hannah's revelation, and having given birth to this this son, she suddenly gets this picture of who God is and how he operates, who this God actually is. He's not a God who overlooks. He's not a God who doesn't remember. He's a God of love and favor, but a God who also takes sin and wickedness uh, seriously because she prays. And she goes on and she, the, the, in chapter 2 it says this, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She has this picture of a God who is exalted. A God who is exalted over suffering and trouble. A God who can conquer our enemies. Our enemies of having the thought that God is not for us, that God is against us. A God who comes with salvation. A God who wants to save and bring healing and wholeness. She gets this picture of who God is. In verse 2, she carries on and she says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Earlier we were singing about the holiness of God. God is set apart. God is holy. God is other. God is supreme. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's macro story is so much bigger than our experience or view on the world. And this God is amazing and supreme and sovereign is what she's saying here. And I love him. I, God, there's, there's no one like you. There's no one like you. You are so superior to all of us. And I want to fall in line with you and with what you are doing in the world. And then in verse 3, she says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The Lord is a God of knowledge. She now knows that God knows. She knows that God knows what she is going through. And uh, she also is dismissing the proud. And the proud are people who want to make their story bigger than God's story. That's what pride is, is when your story becomes bigger than the story that God is doing in the world. And she says, no, that's not right, is when your micro-narrative becomes bigger than God's macro-narrative, and His macro-narrative, to remind you, is His willingness to communicate and express to you His great love and favor to you. So a definition of humility. She's saying arrogance is going to get judged by God, but humility is going to be exalted. That's part of what her song is. So let me give you a definition of humility. Humility, and uh, it's on our slide, good. Humility is knowing God is sovereign and reconciling your whole life with that. Humility is knowing God is sovereign and reconciling your whole life to that and what He is doing and preferring Him and His agenda to our own. Pride is when we switch it. And uh, when we want our story to be bigger than the story that God is doing. Well, let's jump to uh, verse 5. God is the God of the great reversal. This is also part of the revelation that Hannah gets about who God is. In verse 5, she, she uh, sings or she uh, writes a poem about this. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. God is the God of the great reversal. He's the God of the great reversal. You think he's at war with you, and there's probably reason to think that, because of our sin, because of our wrongdoing. But God, through Jesus Christ, has reversed all of that so that he is now for us because of the work of what Jesus Christ has done. God is the God of the great reversal. He can reverse bad things, and he can make them good things. He can take you in your sin and your shame, where you have grounds for rejection, where there is worthlessness in you, and He can reverse that. He can turn it around. You see, that is His macro purpose in the world, is Jesus Christ, to come to a world which is in pain and suffering and shame and guilt, and communicate in Christ that He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. He loves you. He has not overlooked you. He has not forgotten you. He has remembered you. And he's remembered you by coming in Jesus Christ. And suddenly, in her little poem, at verse 6, she suddenly starts getting an even bigger view on what God is doing in the world. She doesn't use the word Jesus. Jesus is still centuries to come. But she gets a vision. She gets a picture. She gets an outline of this Christ who's going to come. And And part of her revelation of God's macro narrative is this outline, this faint outline of Jesus Christ who is to come. Because she starts singing about uh, death and resurrection. Pretty strange things. I mean, there's nowhere in chapter 1 has anyone died or any resurrection has happened. She goes on in verse 6 and she says this, The Lord kills and brings to life. Again, that's an outline of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Christian story, Jesus Christ is God himself who came down to a world which has sinned against God to be killed. He came in human form to be killed for the sins of the world and then to be risen to life by God himself. And she's, as it were, foreseeing this. The Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, which is the grave or death. He brings down to Sheol, but then he rises up. And it's, as it were, an outline of Jesus Christ being killed for the sins of the world and then being resurrected to show that God loves us. God loves the world, and He wants to reconcile. And that is the big macro narrative of all of history and all of the Bible. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. In many ways, she's talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ was made poor so that we could become rich. Jesus Christ was treated with more shame than Hannah experienced. Jesus Christ was mocked. Jesus Christ was told that God too was at war with him. That's what people would mock him with. Jesus Christ was made as poor as possible so that we could get the full riches of a favorable relationship from God to us. Hannah gets a picture of God and what he is like. She carries on and she says in verse 8, he rises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Do you know that the New Testament says we're going to be seated on Jesus' seat? We're already seated there in the heavenly realms. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. If you're in Christ, you're already exalted in the heavenly places. You are treated with this high favor by God. Hannah gets a vision or a picture of this. Verse 9 He will guard the feet of his faithless ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. There's judgment. If you're outside of Christ, you're going to be judged on one day because God does hate wickedness and suffering and pain. But if you're in Christ, if you exercise faith, that's the word that's used there. If you have faith and you're in Christ, then you get the full weight of the love and the mercy and the favor of God. And then verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. That's the judgment of God. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And in the midst of her story, seeing God sovereignly work, sovereignly produce a child, sovereignly frustrate her, sovereignly then produce this child, she sees a king coming. She sees a king coming. She doesn't know that the king's name is Jesus, but she sees the king coming, and she sees that God, the revelation she gets of God is that there's a king who's going to come, and that's going to be part of the macro story of communicating to the world that he loves us and that he is for us, and that he wants to save us from the judgment that we see in verse 10. Okay, in the last minute or two, bring the plane to land, by asking this question. So, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? Well, a couple of questions. Question one to you. What unfulfilled desire should you submit to God's sovereignty now? What unfulfilled desire do you have in your heart which you need to submit to God's sovereignty? Have you made the micro story of your unfulfilled desire, which might be a legitimate desire, no one's questioning that, but have you made that the macro story of the universe? Or should you rather not look at the macro story of God's favor to us in Christ and subordinate or submit your unfulfilled desire to that? I'm not saying ignore your unfulfilled desire. I'm just saying put it in its right order. We know that God loves you, because of what Christ has done. The fact that your desire is not yet fulfilled is not because He doesn't love you. It's not because He's not favorable towards you. But you need to subordinate it. You need to submit it. And you need to begin with the big story, the macro story, that God loves you in Christ, that He is favorably disposed towards you in Christ. Question two. If you have a deeper anxiety because of these unfulfilled desires, is it because you think you are somehow not good enough? Maybe you think the reason my desire is not being fulfilled is because I'm doing something wrong. I'm not good enough. Well, in Christ, he wants to tell you that your sin has been paid for. You are on favorable good terms with him. There might be other reasons why your desire is not being fulfilled. Maybe God has a different plan. But it's not because he doesn't love you, and it's not because he's deeming you that you're not good enough to have something good from him. Third question. Perhaps you are here battling with barrenness, and you are listening to this and finding this a very difficult passage to hear. Well, I want to say that God knows your pain. Hannah's example is that God knows the depth of the brokenness and the pain and the anguish and torment that people go through when they are trying to conceive. And again, the message to you is God is favorably disposed to you. He loves you. And you need to look to the big story, which is Jesus Christ. His love is for you. His love is for you. His love is for you. I'm not sure why this desire is not being fulfilled. But at least we can know. At least we have one fact, a racing certainty that we can rest on. Is that in Christ? God is for you. God is for you. So begin with that. Begin with that. And I also want to say, we as a church would love to be with you and walk with you as you process this. There's so much difficulty when it comes to infertility and people struggling to fall pregnant. There's so much misunderstanding. But I'd love this to be a church where we could walk with people and just listen and be like Eli and say, we are favorably for you. We want to understand. We might not fully understand, but we want to understand. And we want to keep pointing you to the great love of God, the God who loves you, the God who loves you, the God who is for you, not based on you, but based on what Christ has done for you. I'd love us to be this kind of church. And then finally, a question for those who are not yet a Christian. You might, like Hannah, be feeling rejected by God because you've done something bad. Well, the big macro story of the universe is that in Christ Jesus, God wants to forgive you. And He wants to tell you that He doesn't want to reject you. To the contrary, He wants to accept you and bring you in but based solely and exclusively on what Jesus has done. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord, uh, thank you so much for this profound story of Hannah who wrestled with such deep things and was so broken in so many ways. Lord, we want to be a people of faith, a people who, like her, Look to you and ask for your love. Ask to not be overlooked. Ask to be remembered. And thank you that in you, Jesus Christ, we are anything but overlooked, anything but forgotten. We are front and center of your macro story done in Christ. And this is such a deep encouragement to us. Jesus, we look to you this morning. We have so many unfulfilled desires and dreams in our hearts. And yet we look to your great love Us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that uh, as Eli conveyed that message that you see and that you are favorably disposed towards us. Thank you, Lord, that we can rest in this. Lord, for those who are struggling with deep and sore and painful things, for those who are perhaps struggling with infertility, barrenness, like Hannah was. Lord, we just want to wrap them up in your love today and ask that you would bring your blessing and your comfort. Lord, your ways are sovereign. Your ways are mysterious. Your ways are so much higher than we are. But we just ask for comfort for those who need it in this hour.
0: You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.